Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another edition of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. This is season two, episode number 34, and there is no better time than right now with students going back to school, college, high school, coaches and practitioners back in full swing to talk building muscle with nutrition expert and five-time British bodybuilding champion, Dr. Andrew Chappelle is on the show. In this episode, Andrew will discuss the nutritional strategies of elite male and female bodybuilders, including the overall energy intake and macro breakdown, how much protein they consume, and key differences in carbohydrate consumption between bodybuilders who place in the top five versus the rest of the pack. He'll also share how fat intake differs amongst competitors, as well as the massive variance in caffeine intake and just how much the best of the best are really consuming. He'll also talk about other key factors like meal frequency and the number of food items an athlete consumes in one day. Finally, Andrew will also talk supplementation, some of his own research, um, as well as share some of the practical pearls from his years of training as a five-time British champion. Fantastic research from here from Dr. Chappelle. Um, Terrific insights from a guy who himself is the best of the best in bodybuilding. So I hope you're paying attention, taking notes, especially during this one. You can link to Dr. Chappelle's research papers discussed here at drbubs.com forward slash podcast, as well as my layups, the simple actionable tips. If you're interested in more on the topic of hypertrophy, protein, and muscle science, then definitely circle back to season two, episode 32 with Dr. Cody Hahn on responders versus non-responders and light versus heavy loads for hypertrophy. Season one, episode seven, all about protein with expert Dr. Tyler Churchward-Venn. And of course, season two, episode number seven with Dr. Eric Helms for more on nutrition and supplementation for hypertrophy and bodybuilders. New listener, welcome aboard. Thanks for joining in. For all of our regular listeners, I think you're really gonna enjoy this episode. If you're strength, hypertrophy, or physique focused, then definitely, definitely read the research papers here and make sure you take some notes. Awesome, finally, thanks to all the folks for subscribing on YouTube or iTunes. It's really been a big, big help to the show. If you haven't already, then just search the term Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast on YouTube and subscribe. And that way you're not gonna miss any of the fantastic, fantastic guests we've got lined up for this fall. All right, let's get things rolling. Season two, episode number 34, enjoy. My guest today is Dr. Andrew Chappelle. Andrew holds a PhD in human nutrition from the Rowett Institute and currently lectures in sports nutrition at Sheffield Hallam University, where he also specializes in the research of bioactive compounds and their effect on resistance training performance. Andrew also engages in the study of both bodybuilding and strongman populations and is also a competitive pro natural bodybuilder, competing since 2006 and winning five British titles, competing in six world championships, two as a professional, where he recently took home third at the 2017 World Finals. Andrew, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, no problem, Mark. Thanks for having me on here. Looking forward to this. Terrific, Andrew. Well, listen, you've got obviously a fantastic background on the research side of things, as well as obviously on the practical side of things. So can you maybe kick things off here by telling listeners a little bit more about your background and how you got into bodybuilding and academia? Yeah, of course. Um, I'd be happy to. Ed, where to start? I guess I left high school. um, I was interested in health and fitness, and I started doing a a college course in uh, health and fitness with the ambition of going into personal training. And then as I was studying the course, I realized that I was far more interested in the, uh, the physiology and the nutritional aspect than, in, than actually the um, personal training side of things. And I was really more engaged in these sort of the science than any of my, um, my, uh, my classmates. And then it led me on to do my, my first degree in sport and exercise science way back in 2008. That would have been actually some time ago now. Nice. Thanks. And then, uh, 
Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're after that. I went on, I did my uh, my master's in human nutrition. And then after that, I went on and did a PhD after that. And um, the clinic got microbiota, dietary fiber, and uh, the effects on overall health and gut health specifically. So that was at the Rowett Institute, as, uh, as you said. Now, as I mentioned initially, I was a bit of a fitness enthusiast. That's why I was going to, uh, to study. So... I guess at that point I sort of got the uh, what I've once heard described as the uh, the disease forever. <laughs> yeah, I think that's Tom Fussell's Education of a Bodybuilder. Fantastic book for anyone who's interested in uh, in reading uh, bodybuilding literature. Really, really funny. Awesome. But yeah, I, I got into um, health and fitness, and I got into lifting weights in a really big way. And then um, sooner or later, someone sort of says, "Yeah, man, you you should think about doing a, a bodybuilding show." I mean, my perception of bodybuilding was always that you had to be absolutely gigantic, massive, completely ripped to shreds, and that you had to have an association with um, the dark arts, if you like, anabolic steroids and such. But sure. natural, bo- natural bodybuilding was a thing that was out there, and um, I was fortunate enough to, uh, to meet some people who had some connections and that knew about the sport and, uh, and led me down that path rather than a, a different one. And then, I guess... <laughs> 10, 11 years later, I was, uh, I was still doing it. I obviously, I was not bad at it, so I just stuck with it. And then I, I used my own body along the way with um, studying in academia as a, as a science experiment. And that sort of spurred me on ever since. I've, I'm really interested in what it is that um, helps people be the most muscular, the most ripped they can possibly be, and what are the best nutritional methods that we can utilize to get them there, and what are the both the best resistance training methods we might be able to use at the same time and then i've done a few other things on the side so strong man and powerlifting i mean but olympic weightlifting you, you just kind of do these things i think down the year when you've been in the sport of resistance training for that long training around these gyms you you try them out and they're uh, they're all quite good fun so um yeah i love it i'm a total meathead academic <laughs> bro science love, love the, the meathead muscle science fantastic and uh, obviously i'm looking forward to picking your brain here today not only about your own experience and your training but also uh you know your research and your recent study here nutritional strategies of high level natural bodybuilders during competitive preparation now this provided some real you know novel insights into how the best of the best bodybuilders are actually fueling so you know before you started this study what was sort of the state of the research in terms of you know, what we knew about the energy intake or macro intake amongst the elite bodybuilders? Well, the state of um, the state of play before this study was published was there wasn't really that much out there. There's um, there's a handful of studies that were published in the early noughties, um, done on small cohorts, so maybe eight or nine bodybuilders at most, um, some fully male cohorts, some females, um largely using anabolic steroids and then you have to kind of go back to the the early 90s and the late 80s to get really any more studies so there's maybe i know less than 20 studies done on this sort of stuff and again it's all small numbers a lot of it's um just sort of case reports or it's um small cross sections because obviously you have to realize doing intervention studies with bodybuilders is a bit of a challenge no one wants to be on the the control diet, if you like to do a show. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so, so there, there are issues. And then there's a, there's a quite a nice uh, meta-analysis, sorry, it's not a meta-analysis, a systematic review. No, sorry, it is a meta-analysis of um, Bodybuilders published by the fabulously named Spendlove that's came out in 2015. That's, um, that's a group in Australia that did that, that's got given us some information, some insight in all these different strategies that, were compelled so they, they took all that research that was out there and they, they put it all together so we can get a bit of an idea on what the sort of macronutrients are for people um doing these sort of diets and then in the sort of i know sort of 2010s sort of era there's been quite a few case studies done recently just on single bodybuilders but like i said single people there's maybe about eight maybe nine of these have been published now but again, mm-hmm. you, you don't really want to hedge your bets on necessarily what an, an entire field of people are doing just based on single study reports. I mean, obviously very interesting, but I think um, you can see based on what I'm, I've been telling you already that there's clearly a niche here that needs to be filled in terms of what are people actually doing now in terms of getting ready for um, for bodybuilding shows. 
Absolutely. Specifically since um, the early 90s and the, uh, the late the late noughties. Absolutely. So that's, that's the landscape. Beauty, and can you walk listeners through the setup uh, of your study and uh, and then we'll dive into some of the uh, the findings? Oh, yeah, of course. So because I've been doing this for so long now, I mean, gosh, part of the furniture and, uh, and these bodybuilding <laughs> organizations, <laughs> judging, helping them set up, uh, helping them promote and all these things, I've got access to these populations. So in 2016, and actually ongoing now because I'm still continuing this with other research. I uh, I went to the the British finals for the British Natural Bodybuilding Federation, which is one of the largest bodybuilding federations in the world. That's still be the biggest in Europe. And uh, at the the check in the night before they have their uh, their British finals, so where they get all the competitors from the qualifiers and they come to the Britons, there'll be over 150 different competitors. They'll do a, a polygraph test. So. At this point, they can then um, they have to check in. They've got to sit around and then they've got to wait on their times to uh, to get their polygraphs done. And at that moment, you know they're they're sitting about. They're not really doing much. That's an opportunity that I sort of realise. Well, we can maybe collect some data off these people and get them to fill in some um, some more comprehensive uh, surveys and questionnaires that you could um, otherwise really get people to uh, to fill them in. So, and because their bodybuilders are. Um, quite interested in knowing what the best strategies are to, to get themselves in shape, then they're really quite good at engaging with us. So what we did was we, we put together a, a questionnaire, uh, 34 items on what we thought were the most interesting aspects of a bodybuilder's contest preparation. So what was your weight when you started, for example? What it was it when you ended? Do you know what your body fat was? Did you get it measured? What was your dietary approach? How many supplements were you taking? What's your resistance training look like at the start, the middle, and the end? And then obviously we asked them about their um, nutritional um, diet as well. So we got them to do a what would be essentially a 24-hour recall, if you like, at three different time points. But it's obviously not 24-hour recall. Uh, so from a sort of arbitrary time point, say, what did you do right at the start? What was going on kind of in the middle? And then what was going on, say, the, the last couple of weeks? So we had those sort of snapshots there and what was really nice was and it was exactly as i sort of expected was people would pull out their diaries they pull out their phones and they're able to bring up the things that they're consuming in terms of macronutrients exact foods grammage because bodybuilders are very very diligent like this they, they are very meticulous at writing things down so we, i think we got really nice data on um, what people were were consuming throughout their diet and we're following this up now to sort of try and do a little bit of a validation study on this just to sort of double check with some uh, ongoing bodybuilders. But I think the, the data was actually not too bad. So we took all that data and then we uh, we put it through our dietary analysis software and then we uh, we crunched the numbers. Now, one of the things we were kind of interested in was, well, we want to collect all this data. So we want to know what they're consuming in terms of macronutrients, um, et cetera. We want to know how they're kind of training, how much cardio they're doing. But is there a difference between competitors that are successful and competitors that are perhaps not as successful. So what we decided was, well, if you place at the uh, the finals, then you're obviously a pretty good bodybuilder. So to get a placing, you have to make it in the top five and um, everyone gets a trophy in their respective division. But we said, if you make the top five, we'll say that you were a place competitor. And if you don't make the top five, we'll say you're a did not place competitor. And then we analyze the data separately based on that. So are you with me so far, Mark? Is that Okay. Yeah, it's uh, really interesting stuff, and definitely, as you mentioned, you know, such a great cohort, a bit like endurance elite endurance athletes, so good at tracking meticulously. You know, obviously, much better than sort of general public. So, you know, in terms of if we kick things off here with even just you know macronutrients, energy breakdown, what were some of the findings there amongst not only male and female competitors, but you know, as you mentioned, they're the placed and not placed. Okay, sure. So. I mean, I get. I guess we're kind of really interested in what the people are doing that are uh, are the most successful Definitely, in terms yeah. of uh, their, their dietary strategies, and we kind of try and break it down in terms of um, scaling it for body size, so it's kind of relative and everyone can kind of um, relate it to themselves. So we express it all as um, grams per kilogram of body weight, but um, our our most successful competitors, what they were typically doing was they were following a high carbohydrate diet. That was probably one of the sort of main findings from uh, from the study was that these people were consuming around about 5.15 grams per kilogram of body weight. So you're 
100 kilogram bodybuilder eats about 500 grams of carbohydrates per day. And obviously, there's a sort of idea that obviously you need to drop the carbs to um, to lose weight. So this kind of runs contrary to that sort of belief that actually they should be um, consuming as many carbohydrates. So that was at the the start of their diet, and that, then by the end. And of Andrew, the diet, that's a, just to jump in. That's a pretty huge. Uh, finding in, in the sense of maybe for the general population because oftentimes especially today with you know low carb being uh, you know potentially pretty nice strategy for a lot of overweight individuals but you know athletes kind of now run into this idea that they should be following this strategy and obviously at five grams per kilo that's a, that's a lot of carbohydrate and these guys are are very lean yeah ab- absolutely i think that's that's one of the major things that these guys they're in shape and they're consuming that much carbohydrates so just to, to look at them then it, yeah you, it's, it's a nice finding in that in that respect at the end of the diet though what we sort of see is that they're still consuming a very high carbohydrate diet so i think we're talking about um what was it be about 4.6 grams so i mean there's a slight drop there they are reducing their, their carbohydrate intake towards the end of their diets in the last couple of weeks but they're still consuming a lot of carbohydrates and keeping them in now previous to uh, to this study there are some recommendations out there for uh, strength training resistance athletes. Yep. And we sort of say around about that four to seven gram sort of bracket is what we sort of recommend. I think um, I think Slater and Phillips recommended that for um, for bodybuilders as well. So what was quite nice about this was that you could actually see a cohort that were consuming a high carbohydrate diet within that sort of reference range, but they were actually trying to lose fat at the same time. So I think that's quite nice. So they're actually cutting and still consuming high carbohydrates um, in that sort of range as well. The uh, the females in our cohort, they were actually consuming slightly less in terms of the uh, the carbohydrate intake, but they're still consuming a, a decent amount. So we're talking around about 3.7, 3.5 grams per kilogram of body weight. And that's certainly much, much higher than any of the recent case study reports that are out there from the uh, American bodybuilders that are um, dieting for sure. So... The Brits seem to be eating a lot more in terms of carbohydrates than the American. That's that's another observation as well. I wonder if that's a cultural thing or, or if it's the level of competition or, or whatever it is. Yeah, it's interesting. And, uh, you know, for people listening in, what are some of the pitfalls then, you know, for people who are bodybuilders, if they're, if they're following more of a lower carb approach, when we see that these elite, you know, men are at 4.6 to 5, the women 3.5, uh, you know, 3.8, as you were mentioning. Yeah. Um, what happens if we're getting too low carb for these types of individuals? Well, what we kind of sort of hypothesize, the, the, the theory is that, okay, so we're doing uh, resistance training, particularly resistance training that lasts around about 40 to, um, say, 60, 70 seconds. Uh, and then we're doing repeated bouts, and we're doing a lot of activity that involves glycolysis. So breaking down of glucose and then um, producing lactic acid off the back of it. So there's a high energy demand for uh, for for glucose here when you're doing this sort of training. And if you don't have the uh, adequate carbohydrate intake, then potentially you can't maintain that training intensity. So you stand the risk of potentially not being able to maintain as much muscle tissue as you possibly can when you're getting ready for these shows. Because when you're getting ready for these shows, it's all about trying to keep the muscle on your frame. So we think that's one of the things. Uh, Another thing is if we go too low with our carbohydrate intake, perhaps we get... um, an excess amount of gluconeogenesis. So again, we have to break down other non-carbohydrate stores for um, for glucose, essentially. So we're breaking down protein tissues. We're, we're breaking down um, excess um, triglycerides and using that glycerol as well as an energy source. So we, we perhaps be much better in terms of functionality for the uh, the diet if we actually just put the glucose in there in the first place. And then, um, then maybe it's an adherence thing. Maybe... Maybe we get extra carbohydrate in the diet because we've often got fiber associated with that carbohydrate uh, in terms of our food sources, particularly cereals and things like that. Maybe there's um, it helps these people sort of stick to the diet a little bit better as well. So there's potentially three different reasons why the higher carbohydrate diet might be potentially helping them. And then the pitfalls are obviously perhaps a, a loss of a uh, loss of muscle tissue. Now, for sure, I will cat I will caveat all of this with the fact that. People that seem to be doing quite well in the um, in our cohort, not only did they eat more carbohydrates, they were eating more total energy. So maybe one of the questions is: is it more total energy that they're consuming? But I'd kind of 
veer towards slightly higher carbohydrate diet would be my my idea my behind why these people maybe did a little bit better. Absolutely. And you, you noted they were consuming cereals, tubers, fruits and veggies in the study. Um, you don't see a lot of bread on the menu here. Is that, is that something that's uh, just, you know, a holdover in the bodybuilding community? Is that anything around, you know, gluten or digestive issues or any of that kind of stuff? I mean, yeah, I, I think you touched on a few things that are, that are quite, um, quite nice ideas. What it could be, it could be a holdover from uh, the bodybuilding sort of community. There, there's a culture around sort of not really consuming bread um i've never really understood why but one of the reasons might be it's what you eat bread with so maybe but bodybuilders don't like to eat too much fat in their diet and i guess you put spreads on uh, breads or you eat processed meats with breads don't you or you tend to have like preserves like jams and things of breads and sure. you don't really see, you don't really see a lot of these things in in the bodybuilders diet so maybe that's one of the reasons i mean gluten potentially I mean, there's there's a podcast to be had in itself on that sort of subject. Does yeah, it? Sure, does it not bloat sure. you? Um, I mean, maybe they don't want to take the the chance with it as well with with it bloating them. Um, so so maybe that's what it is. But in terms of the the foods that they're eating, yeah, you've you've mentioned a couple of them. They are the the bodybuilding staples that you'd actually expect would be in the in their diet. So again, it's tubers, um, whole grains. Uh, dairy largely from things like whey protein eggs um, there's some um, other root vegetables in there as well but actually if you look at the actual diversity of the diet then you're only sort of seeing about 12 to say sort of 13 different food items across the sort of course of the diet so the diet is kind of limited it's kind of it's kind of bland what the bodybuilders are having but I mean, maybe it maybe it works for them, or well, certainly I've done, I've done it a lot myself. In it, for sure. I was gonna I was gonna mention that as well. In terms of is that sort of practicality? In terms of if you're gonna be calculating energy intake and calories, it's just easier to stick to like a smaller set of foods to be able to to gauge that. Is that just you know people again following a certain pattern, and then it just ends up being a smaller amount of food because that's typically what their colleagues are you know and they're are also following. What do you what do you think on that? I. Do you know what, I think you've actually, again, you've hit the nail on the head. I think there is a practicality aspect of eating similar things every single day. There's a practicality in terms of calculating energy intake. If you've got a diet which is more diverse, then there's more margin for error in terms of macronutrients deviating from day to day. And we know you can get metabolic adaptations from, say, a calorie deficit of around about 80 calories. So is nothing, if you've right? got... Yeah, which which is nothing. So you could easily get that from having a more diverse diet, you can imagine. So maybe it's a practicality in that respect. There is a whole bodybuilding culture around the idea of being hardcore, though. So this this notion of suffering, eating broccoli and chicken, you know, all that sort of stuff. So For sure. that's part of it as well. So, yeah, I think that's maybe what it is. I, that's what I would say. But certainly these people are trying to... Um, etch out margins of half a percent and if it means that maybe they stick to certain food types throughout the the course of a diet and that means that their macros are the same day in day out and they don't have deviations and that maybe helps them then then maybe that's one of the reasons they do it absolutely maybe it's maybe it's a lot and it's a hardcore sort of aspect and in talking about macros we talk carbohydrates now sure. on the protein intake side of things you know what was the sure. uh, differences there amongst the the placers and the non-placers Okay, so the headlines on that here are, I mean, it's a high-protein diet, as you'd probably imagine. We're looking at around about 3 grams per kilogram of body weight is what guys are um, taking in in terms of protein intake. Um, the females slightly less, around about 2.7 grams per kilogram of body weight, but it's still a really large um, protein intake. The guys that don't place slightly less, again, about 2.7, but you're only talking about 0.3 of a gram. And again, it's a case of, well, does that really matter in the, the sort of grand scheme of, uh, scheme of things? I mean, we know about protein synthesis, and if, if you once you reach that sort of leucine threshold, then you can't synthesize protein, uh, turn on that machinery anymore. We, we know about retaining nitrogen balance, so once you go past a certain threshold, then you, you're, you're not losing any less, sorry, you're not losing muscle tissue. So I wouldn't suspect that, the difference between the guys that placed and didn't place that that little bit of protein made that much of a difference. But certainly, these people they're they're consuming a high protein diet because we know it keeps muscle tissue on their frame, 
And uh, there's also that sort of satiating aspect as well. And then there's the culture thing. I mean, everyone knows that protein is what you need to uh, to build to build tissue, which um, leads us on to our last macronutrient. And if we've got a high protein diet and we've got a high carbohydrate diet, then what the bodybuilders certainly in this study seem to be doing was prioritizing those two nutrients over fat. So we're not really seeing a high fat intake in this population that we're, uh, we're looking at. So it's it's less in some cases than 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. So people consume in, say, between, in some cases, 30 to, say, 50, 60 grams of fat a day. So so not a lot for the uh, the dieting athlete. And is that something, uh, you know, you mentioned before, sort of some differences between, you know, American bodybuilders versus whether it's UK or European bodybuilders on the fat intake side of things? Can you uh, touch on that? Yeah, it's it's not that common for uh, for the fat intakes to be as um, as low as that. So, I mean, there's there's some recommendations out there just now that suggest something in the region around about, say, 20 to sort of 30% of the diet should uh, should come from fat for the uh, the diet and bodybuilder. That's um, the, the Helms paper that sort of suggests that evidence-based paper. But when you start looking into the uh, the research on it, you sort of find that it's actually a little bit sketchy and that the reasons for having such a, a high-fat diet for people that are largely engaged in, engaged in resistance training don't seem to necessarily um, infer that they need a diet as high as that. But there are instances where people are consuming low amounts. So there's a couple of papers, again, from the early 90s where you'll get reports of people consuming around about 10% of their diet coming largely from uh, from fat for bodybuilding. But this is kind of a little bit rare that you don't usually see people consuming fat intakes quite as, uh, quite as low as that. But Again, I would sort of defer to um, the athletes themselves and say, okay, on the stage, these men and women, they're extremely muscular, um, extremely ripped, fantastic shape, lots of muscle on their frame, despite their uh, their really low fat intake. So it didn't seem to be um, working against them in that respect. And, and maybe it's something to do with the, the types of fats. Maybe once they've got that threshold of essential fatty acids, then they're, they're okay. That, that might be it. Does that answer your question, Mark? Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And it kind of circles back here to the protein intake side of things because in reading sure. your, your paper, you know, the, the lack of red meat consumption and egg yolk consumption sure. amongst the bodybuilders is definitely one yeah. that, you know, is, is it that fear of fat intake that they're typically worried about? Is there still like a hangover of cholesterol and saturated fat or is it just more perhaps on that, you know, caloric intake and fat intake side of things where we don't see as much consumption? Again, I think you've you've pointed out a couple of things that are probably going on. I mean, bodybuilding is so surrounded by the the lore of um, the the whole sport, the the culture of the sport. I mean, so it's it's a bit like that Rocky thing where people eat raw eggs, don't they? Because you've seen Rocky doing it, and that's that's survived in um, pop pop culture for like fifty years or however long that movie's been, but. Yeah, um, bodybuilders, you, you read Flex magazine that says don't eat the egg yolks and then uh, that stays around for like the next 20, 30 years but, because they think that the cholesterol is going to be bad for their health. But I think some of it's that. The other side of it is, as you say, it's, it's caloric intake. So if you're trying to prioritize um, having a higher carbohydrate intake and a um, higher protein intake, then you need to make adjustments elsewhere. So you need to uh, you need to bring... The, uh, the fat intake down to sort of um, to sort of marry up with that. I mean, what I would say though is that the suggestion that you could probably get away, well, I would suggest you could probably get away with having a slightly lower protein intake. So maybe not necessarily as high as that sort of three grams. You can maybe hedge your bets and go bets and go down to about two point five grams per kilogram of body weight when you're cutting and put some of those extra calories back into the um, back into the fats or even if you wanted, you could maybe see how high you could push the, uh, the the carbohydrates for that extra energy content. But yeah, like like you say, I think it's a cultural thing, and I think it's a counting your calories thing. Yeah, it's, uh, that's really interesting. And um, some more areas, obviously, in the study was about caffeine intake. And of course, the, oh, know, yeah. the mean daily caffeine consumption for the men there was around 320, uh, about 250 yeah. for the women. But I was really, uh, you know, my eyes started to pop out when I read that the top end for the men was almost 1,400 milligrams in a day, which is a pretty massive dose. Uh, can you comment about caffeine intake and, and in your study and in general amongst bodybuilders? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, how accurate some of the numbers are, I mean, 
it's a bit open to interpretation, but there's there's okay. no there's no doubt that these people were consuming a high caffeine intake um, that the bodies bodybuilders tend to do. I mean, black coffee is uh, is a staple in, in many bodybuilders' diets to to just get them through the day, which is to give them that little bit of a stimulant boost when their calories are low to keep them sort of going on. And I think people sort of replace. Um, other things in their life with uh, with with caffeine, so they can't go to a bar or anything like that. So they, they go to Costas and they have their their coffees in that way, just for as a social thing. But I mean, there's obviously a, a stimulant side of thing. There's there's this idea that they it might in some way be have a lipoic effect, mm-hmm. whether it does or not, probably not. Um, and then there's a training boost, so caffeine does reduce your um, rate of perceived exertion. So the, these are some benefits of caffeine. Certainly, if we have too much, it's ergolytic. Those high amounts, definitely ergolytic. But I think in a lot of cases, some people don't realize actually how much caffeine they're actually consuming. And if I paint a picture for you, you can quite easily see how you could get a high amount when you wake up in the morning. You have a couple of fat burners, which might contain 250 megs of caffeine in them. That's that's not uncommon. You maybe have a black coffee then you um you head off to your work, you might have another cup of coffee or you might have a couple of um green teas or something like that that's got caffeine in it. You then take your uh, your pre workout supplement, you then take your uh, your fat burners along with that as well. And then you uh, you maybe have some energy drinks through the day. And before you know it, you can get a really, really high caffeine content. I mean some of these intro workouts that people take again can have um can have caffeine in them. And I don't necessarily think a lot of people were quite aware of um, how high their caffeine contents were. Oh yeah, the, the other thing is um, like things like um, beverages, so um, diet colas, uh, diet pop. So some of these things have got caffeine in them as well. And bodybuilders seem to be in this cohort anyway quite high consumers of of these sort of beverages as well. So you've got accounts of people having like say six cans of pepsi max a day or like wow uh, yeah i mean these are ones that just spring to mind off the top of my head because obviously you remember that yeah, for um, sure well i I, re- I recently had dr ian uh Dunican on from in from australia and he worked with the uh, uh rugby team out in the western side of australia and you know he had a lot of his and the team that they analyzed the guys weren't even aware of the you know they were adding it was a powdered form of caffeine, so you know if they figured, well, if one scoops what they want us to take, then you know three, <laughs> three, three must be better. Um, yeah. And so yeah. obviously having massive amounts of caffeine, much more than they realize, the impacts, the trickle down effects on sleep quality after sure. that. So uh, it is, it is a pretty important one. And for yourself, you know, whether in the study or even you know just in, in competing yourself, do you find more of like coffee intake for for caffeine beverages versus you know taking uh, supplements with exact dosages of caffeine? I mean, I for I can only sort of relate this to myself here, but I, I sort of realized a long time ago that if I consume caffeine past around about three o'clock, then I can't sleep. So that means for, for me that a whole load of pre-workout supplements are just off the table completely unless I train at the weekend in the afternoon. So I try to avoid this stuff, but I would just usually, um, if I was going to have one before I train, I'd probably just go for like a a strong cup of coffee or, or something like that. I mean, a strong cup of coffee can give you around about three megs per kilogram of body weight dosage to around about two megs. And that sort of dosage can be enough to give you a performance enhancing effect. So yeah, that that's sort of my experience with it. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if you're in the U S you got the try into there at Starbucks, so you, yeah, you can definitely get up to six, 750 milligrams, but, um, oh, I, I, don't, I don't, yeah, think wow. that, I don't think that, I don't think that size is available in the, <laughs> in, in the UK or Canada yet. So, um, but yeah, and talking about obviously the caffeine intake, um, mm-hmm. you know, meals per day, meal frequency is another one that's, uh, sure. you know, typically we see a higher meal frequency. Obviously, we're trying to get all those calories in. Was there any, sure. you know, what was the number for the competitors? Any differences between the groups? All right. Okay. Um, you're going to have to forgive me. I've forgotten the numbers off the top of my head, but it's a high meal frequency. I think it was around about five to six. There was no differences between the groups, but yeah, they're they're consuming what you'd imagine from bodybuilders, five, six meals per day, smaller wheels. And I think it's just purely practicality. Um, I mean, these people are consuming around about, say, it's about 35 calories per kilogram of body weight when you're dieting. So, I mean, it, it adds up and it, it just makes it a little bit easier for them to, to consume those calories over multiple small meals. 
bodybuilders as well are, are big on things like um, post-workout nutrition as well. So we, we do count things like a, a post-workout shake almost as a meal if you like because someone is consuming around about, say, two or 300 calories in that sort of um, that sort of meal. Um, the other thing yep. might be, again, because they're on a diet, they're, they're consuming more meals just to help as a, a satiety thing. I mean, whether or not there is a performance-enhancing effect on fat burning, if you like, I think there was a Alan Aragon and Co did a meta-analysis on this that showed a, a very slight advantage when you go from, say, having three to sort of five, but no difference between sort of four and five and so on. So, But I think it's a sort of practical sort of side of things. Maybe, maybe you get better dietary adherence once you, um, you go more meals. And again, it's a cultural thing. So bodybuilders like the carry about six pack bags and sure. uh, take out take out multiple meals and things like that i mean it's all part of the the whole sort of being a bodybuilder and your identity is having smaller more often meals as well definitely and this kind of dovetails into the idea of cheat meals as well because i noticed in the study sure. the guys who did place uh the best had fewer cheat meals than those who didn't um is that uh just they've got better adherence or you know is there is there more to the story there it's it's difficult to say. Um, maybe that's what it is. I mean, the, the idea of a cheat meal is it's supposed to allow you to have a better adherence. So you you schedule the cheat rather than um, rather than just sort of having a non calorie controlled um, meal. So you you'd use the cheat to sort of allow you to stick to your diet for the the rest of the week. And then obviously the the guys that are um, not cheating have. Uh, they're obviously got better adherence, but they've also got a higher calorie content in their diet overall. I mean, when you have a cheat meal, you often have to make sacrifices elsewhere. Gotcha. So you end up having this, um, you have this, say, high calorie meal, uh, or if you count it, if you don't count it, but then the next day it's kind of like 5-2 dieting, if you like, where you um, you make a sort of calorie deficit to compensate for the extra calories that you had the previous day. And then that makes a deficit for you. So maybe they would have been better off having it uh, not having it and just being better adherence but again the dietary approach that the the person follows it has to be one that um they can actually stick to and if they can't get through the diet without a cheat meal then maybe there's a, a place for it but certainly our data set it looks like uh, the cheat meal is probably not going to be as beneficial as if you can get high adherence for it hopefully i've articulated that for you though yeah no, no, that's terrific and uh, you know in talking about you know the assessment methods these athletes are using bodybuilders sure. are using obviously you know skin fold calipers are pretty handy although i was surprised to see sure. only about half 53 percent were using calipers um sure. and 13 percent of bodybuilders were using the mirror test um yeah you know, did that surprise you is that something that's, that's sort of common is it just uh, more practical for them what are your thoughts there again it's it's a sort of bodybuilding culture thing i mean there's no doubt that objective methods are are useful Definitely, they, they are. I mean, it can help you gauge your pro, uh, your your progress. But I think it's the subjective nature of the sport, and it's how you actually look is the thing that actually really matters. So I think that's why bodybuilders really like the uh, the mirror test. And certainly in my experience, um, you can well a, a picture tells a thousand a thousand stories, doesn't it? And if the For person sure. doesn't look it doesn't look in shape, despite the fact that you've uh, you've got low skin calipers, then it's maybe doesn't necessarily have as much, as much value. But, um, I'll say once we, uh, just now we're, we're doing a study just now where we're getting bodybuilders into the, uh, the lab and we're, we're measuring their body fat through, um, ultrasound. And then we've got our method bioelectrical impedance and we're asking, I'm asking them to, uh, to guess what their body fat levels are. And then I'm doing the measurement, then I'm doing the measurement on them. Cause I want you to kind of know, well, how how good are they at actually guessing it? And believe it or not, they're they're not bad. I mean, they they're normally about about a percent or two um, off of what the actual uh, the actual values I'm getting from my um, equipment is. And we certainly all know how precise these methods are in general. So For sure. they might be guessing they might be uh, guessing not too uh, not too bad as well. But certainly, no, I I would um, I would say skin calipers definitely useful. Um, I would recommend people sort of use them just to help gauge and track their their pro, uh, process their sort of progress but also using things like the um taking photographs in the, in the mirror seems to be very uh, useful as well and the, the fact that a lot of bodybuilders are 
sort of just gauging it based on the mirror. I mean, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, it's common sort of practice for coaches to sort of look at their, their athletes and judge them based on how they're, they're looking in their mirror. Certainly the experienced ones anyway. Yeah, it definitely makes sense considering that's going to be how they're, they're judged yeah. in the, during competition. So now what about weekly weight loss? What did you, uh, you know, what does the, the research indicate as an ideal target? And did you find that uh, in the elite uh, bodybuilders that you were studying? Well, what we kind of know from, from the research is that people that tend to lose the weight a little bit slower tend to be a little bit better at keeping muscle mass on their frame. So if you lose, say, 10 kilograms in five weeks uh, compared to losing 10 kilograms in 10 weeks, if you do the five-week method, then more of what you've lost will be um, will be muscle mass. So it's crucial for our bodybuilders that they, uh, they lose their weight slowly. There were some recommendations out there which suggested that somewhere in the region of, say, 0.5 to, uh, to 1% weight loss per week is a sort of good range to sort of go with. And I would say, yeah, that, that seems like a perfectly um, reasonable um, reasonable level. I think our cohort, when we uh, we look at it, we've sort of seen levels around about 0.46 to around about 0.6 sort of percent. So, yeah, really sort of small weekly uh, weight loss from uh, from all our groups in this. So the men and the women, the ones that placed and, and did not place. So these people were, were, were well within the range. And I should say, to get ready for... Um, for this show, the uh, the British finals, the average sort of diet length was around about twenty four weeks. So it's about wow. half a year spent on a yeah, it's, yeah it's half, half a year. year, half a year. It lose around about eleven percent. And if we look at our standard deviations, I mean, some of these people will actually be spending more. I mean, they'll be they'll be spending around about say forty weeks actually on the diet in total. So because there there is some variation in our in our data sets. So it's, it's, you're in it for the long haul if you want to be good at it. You're definitely in it for the long haul. How about you for yourself, Andrew? If, uh, in terms of your prep, is 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 that um, you know? Are, are, do you fall into a similar category there? What, what did your prep look like yeah. for these competitions? Uh, absolutely. So when I was younger, and I think this is probably the same for um, for a lot of people, is I could get away with doing diets that were <laughs> definitely that were eight weeks in length, and uh, but I mean I was probably in better shape in the off season. I mean that that's an important caveat actually. If you're in good shape to start with, then you obviously don't need to spend as long on the uh, the diet. But what I've found in years is as you progressively move up the levels, you end up spending a little bit longer and longer on the, the diet. So the mm-hmm. the last prep I did, I think I was about a 24 to 26-week diet for a British finals. By the time I got to the world finals, I mean, you're looking at around about 30 weeks yep. on the, uh, the diet all in. And you just, it's that slow weight loss um, week by week losing a little bit um, a little bit of fat some weeks not losing anything at all but keeping keeping strong and keeping the food high and just not panicking as I say to everyone I mean the, one of the big things with uh, with bodybuilding is time that's mm-hmm. your most that's your most important commodity when it comes to to doing the diet because making sure you've got enough time because you do get peaks and troughs in your your diet and if you've given yourself enough time then you can make adjustments but if you're always chasing your tail then chances are by the time you get to the end, you might not be quite as um, quite as conditioned as you might be, or you might have to do something drastic whereby you end up dieting a little bit harder and then you, you sacrifice a, a little bit of muscle tissue. So your package that you ultimately bring is, um, is not as good. And once that tissue goes, if you've got other shows to do the weeks that follow, then you, you don't get that tissue back until you come, bo- come back off the diet. It's just too late, right? That's it. And uh, yeah, it's really interesting stuff and in terms of on the supplement side of things you guys obviously evaluated that as well um you know love to get your take on what what some of your strategies are but when we talk about you know some of the big ones you know whey protein bcas you know you recently did some work on citrulline malate can you can you speak to those kind of big three? Oh yeah of course so unsurprisingly protein powder number one supplement that, that everyone seems to use so guys about 75 percent of them using protein powder uh women approaching 90% of the population using protein powder and it's whey and it's uh, and it's casein i mean we i didn't separate it out to uh, to specify each one gotcha. but yeah it, everyone's using them and i don't think we really need to say anything about protein for sure, powder yeah. I think everyone, convenient everyone palatable got to get it in for sure yeah uh, absolutely uh, branch pe- branch chain amino acids they surprised me actually um 50% of the population using branch chain amino acids both men and women, 
possibly as a muscle preservation strategy. That's, I guess, the, the sort of idea, isn't it, that you get the, the muscle full effects um, of, of using branched-chain amino acids. But actually, I mean, as popular as things like um, creatine supplements um, or um, things like omega-3 fatty acids, things that we, we certainly know actually work. So, I mean, lots and lots of people using branched-chain amino acids. And I think the, uh, the research on that branched-chain amino acids is not quite as strong to, uh, to justify their, their use in the populations. I think we, uh, we spoke about this before, but certainly with those super high protein intakes of, say, three grams per kilogram of body weight, I mean, the, the use of a branched-chain amino acid as uh, an additional supplement for me, seems like um, additional calories that could probably be, be used elsewhere. For sure, so, a little redundant at that point, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I mean, once you use, say, five or six supplements, individual amino acids, carb supplements and stuff, people, we have to remember that there's calories in all of that as well. And if you're counting everything, then those are calories that could be uh, being used elsewhere. Definitely, and probably often overlooked as well. And you mentioned yeah. creatine, and in the study, there were not. Were there any participants that were using the creatine? Yeah, I mean, like say, fifty percent of the population are using creatine sort of supplements. But as supplement that we know certainly works in terms of increasing your one rep max or increasing your sort of ten rep max um, strength. I mean, and improving recovery, etc. I mean, you would think that for bodybuilding this supplement which is tailor-made then everyone would be using this supplement so for me that was a that was a real surprise i would have thought that everyone would be using at least creatine but we know it works so. yeah you think that'd be 100 percent, absolutely yeah yeah why, why not use it it'd be up there with the, the protein powders at least but i mean a lot of people had coaches and i and i mean as a coach i mean i think that's a bit of an oversight if you've not got your athletes using something uh, something like that I mean, I understand when it comes to the end of your contest preparation that you might take the uh, the creatine supplement out because there's all that stuff that people like to talk about in terms of holding water or um, potential side effects. So you maybe don't take the risk at all, but um, certainly for the training phases, you would think you'd keep it in all the way through. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, you had a recent paper on uh, citrulline malate supplementation and aerobic performance. And so... You know, for listeners who aren't maybe familiar with it, can you tell us a little bit more about citrulline malate, you know, some of the proposed mechanisms of how it could help in terms of bodybuilding performance? Oh, yeah, for, for sure. So citrulline malate is the uh, the latest bodybuilding supplement to uh, to hit the market. So you'll find that in most of your pre-workout supplements. And the um, idea is that it helps give you a pump in the same way that the uh, alpha-ketoglutarate and the, uh, the arginine supplements that were on the market years before that you would have found in things like um, Nox pumps, probably the most famous one I can think of from BSN, sure. remember that one. So it, it was similar sort of mechanism. So help increase blood flow to the muscle, help oxygen delivery. And then the the additional benefit of something like citrulline, citrulline malate is that you can remove ammonia from, uh, from muscle tissue and ammonia is toxic to muscle tissue and impairs performance. So if you can remove this from... Um, from the muscle tissue, then you can potentially reduce muscle soreness and then you can improve performance as well. The The rest of the benefits are very similar to the sort of things that you would get from things like uh, from arginine. So people suggest that it's going to improve repetition performance, going to improve um, rate of perceived exertion. So that's going to be reduced um, and you're going to get reduced um, muscle soreness. So there was some early work that came out, um, early noughties, a few papers throughout um, 05, 06, then a few papers came out 12 and 16 from uh, Benjamin Wax. But more recently, there's been three or four papers that have kind of swayed the balance and sort of said that, well, this supplement doesn't seem to be actually doing anything. So we've recently published um, a study in the GISSN using citrulline malate on um, sort of moderately trained um, recreationally resistance trained um, healthy young people where we've given them eight grams of, uh, of citrulline malate to see if we could improve their German volume training performance. So 10 sets of 10 repetitions and we got them doing leg extension exercise. So we took their bloods, uh, we measured the number of repetitions and then we also measured their one rep max strength. And essentially what we found was that the citrulline malate supplement taking at around about 
eight grams didn't seem to really do anything for um, for their resistance training performance. So that's the uh, the first study that we've um, we've published. That will uh, that's available now. We've got another one which is scheduled to come out September in the Journal of Dietary Supplements, where we've done a slightly different design using the citrulline malate supplement, but we've found exactly the same that we can't seem to find any effect of it. And then we've just finished another study, which we're uh, we're working on, and uh, we've used it as a loading dose. We wondered, well, if we give eight grams every single day for five days, maybe if you load on this stuff, then it's going to make a difference. And uh, okay. we don't really seem to have, we don't really seem to have found an effect with uh, the citrulline um, and that one as well. But may, maybe we're doing it wrong. Maybe we've missed something or something like that to um, to sort of see. If, how we can make this uh, supplement work or maybe we're not using the, the correct populations but certainly our research seemed to indicate that for kind of recreational trained people that couldn't really seem to uh, to offer much in the way of um, performance. Yeah, definitely then, important uh, considering most people have a limited budget in terms of whether it's for their food and definitely for the supplements so sure. having evidence-based ones that they know are actually going to help move the needle and their preparation is so key so uh, you know on that note, maybe if you can get on the personal side of things for yourself, Andrew, are there certain uh, supplements that you use in, in the buildup um, that you rely on, or, or what does that look like? Yeah, sure. Um, thanks for asking. So we mentioned protein powder. As you say, I don't think we really need to say anything on that, really, on that. So I'll use some protein powder. Um, fish oil, so I, I believe in taking essential fatty acids. I always take um, omega-3 fatty acids. I don't really go in for uh, flax seeds or, or anything like that because I go for the, the longer chain dietary fatty acids because these, sure. are, the, yeah, these are the effective ones. Um, a multivitamin, I tend to take one of these more as an insurance policy than necessarily does it actually do anything. And these things are relatively inexpensive. I mean, you can pack up a packet of multivitamins for less than three pounds for like 120 capsules. Definitely, um, definitely. Especially with the lower fat intakes as well, right? Important to get yeah. those fat-soluble vitamins in. Ab- absolutely, yeah. G- great point on that one there. Great point on that as well. Um, so I'll take that as well. Creatine supplement as well. So I'll, I'll take that as well. So I use um, crealkaline, it's called. Um, but whether or not that's any better than creatine monohydrate, someone can uh, no doubt tell me. But uh, it seems, certainly seems to be as effective, at least, as that. And then um, more recently, uh, vitamin D. I think from one of my colleagues at my uh, my works, a, a big vitamin D guy, and again, maybe I'm just taking it as a, a sort of insurance policy because it's, again, it's relatively inexpensive. But those, those would be my, my go-to ones. Occasionally, I would take a a pre-workout supplement just to sort of uh, pick me up now and again, but I, I don't really abide by these things that much. Most most of the stuff I'm using is, is just good old-fashioned food. Awesome, awesome. And... Um... You know, if for let's call them, you know, moderate to advanced trainees who are listening in, or, or coaches or trainers sure. who who are working with uh, these types of, of bodybuilders or athletes, you know, what are some tips that you might give to help somebody to propel them to that next level, to sort of advanced or even to elite in terms of may- maybe some of the gaps or roadblocks or things that you find amongst some of those that population that they're just not getting right on the on the nutrition or supplementation side of things. I mean, to that last point I made there on uh, on food being key. That, that would be one. I would say um, sit down, have a look at your uh, your diet, actually work out what you're actually taking in and make sure that you, you have enough calories coming in. As I um, as I often say to my students when it comes to uh, to weight gain, the thing that will probably more or less make or break the diet is usually the, the carbohydrate intake rather than the protein intake. Bodybuilders don't really seem to have a problem at all when it comes to making sure that they get enough uh, protein in their diet, but making sure that they're actually consuming enough calories because you need to make sure that you've got enough calories just to sustain the body. You need the calories to uh, fuel your day. You need the calories then to fuel your workouts. Then you need your calories to uh, to help you recover. So uh, most of that energy is, is going to need to come from a, from a higher carbohydrate intake. Uh, and then after that, I mean, hitting your, your compound exercises are always going to be king. So Making sure you get good at the uh, the big three, so the squat, the bench, and the deadlift. Doing some sort of periodized program whereby you um, you you follow cycles where you focus on strength, where you focus on slightly higher reps, and uh, when you focus on uh, slightly lower reps as well. 
it doesn't necessarily have to be sort of um, a twice a week split, a bro split. Just do whatever fits with your lifestyle. But uh, certainly periodization, I think, is sort of key. And then just take take your time, is what I would say. Um, the old cliche that, that Rome wasn't built in a day is, is so true. I, I see so many young teen and young uh, junior bodybuilders that are um, asking me for advice and saying, what about this, what about that? And I see the way they train, I, I know how they eat, and I just sort of have to say it. And I was like, look, you're doing everything right. You're just It's just going to take you time to, uh, to add that muscle. This is... Um, this is an older guy's sport and um, most of the guys hit their sort of peak around about 30, 31, 32. So you just, just keep doing what you're doing. You'll you'll get there eventually. Just stick in. That's awesome, Andrew. Great tips, especially from someone with uh, five British titles. You're definitely uh, walking the walk. Um, and obviously, too, I want to respect your time here, you know, getting to the sure. end of the interview here and and. The evolution of research and bodybuilding. This is, uh, you sure. know, where, where are we going to be here in the next sort of five or 10 years? Where do you see things going and what type of research, maybe even for yourself, do you see yourself doing? Well, I can speak to myself uh, myself just now. Um, I mean, we've got this paper that's been published just now. I've got another one which we're, uh, we're working on, which is hopefully, well, I can see now is probably at the final draft stage to be getting ready to send away on um, peak week, which is a another interesting subject. So I think that's a, a gap in the, the literature that needs to be addressed just now on what are the good peaking strategies? What are people actually doing just now? So we've, we've got that going out there, but um, certainly what we need is we need some more um, high quality uh, cross-sectional studies whereby we're, we're following bodybuilders um, throughout their contest preparation to see what's actually going on in terms of things like do these people get things like metabolic damage? If, if you like, I think, I think we've got already there's there's enough single case studies out there. I mean, we've got nine or ten. Hopefully, I think that I would hope the journals are now at the stage where we're saying, like, we've got enough of this stuff. We don't need to publish this anymore. We need to get larger cohorts and tracking what um, what people are actually doing. But I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful we're, we're getting, starting to get some nice studies. I mean, just now there's a uh, Lachlan Mitchell's out there. He's doing some nice stuff. He's uh, in Australia. He's just finished his PhD and uh, he's done a PhD on bodybuilding. Don't know how he's managed that. Fantastic, <laughs> has, that's the dream, has, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well done. So uh, he's he's had uh, three or four papers that are uh, being published just now. You can you can find them if you you look them up on um on ResearchGate on um strategies that bodybuilders are utilising to to get in stage. But yeah, there's there's some researchers doing some stuff just now, and hopefully we can now make sort of recommendations for uh, for populations based on what bodybuilders are are actually doing, rather than sort of always deferring with the caveat that this is a strength-based population or a athletic population are, are doing this. Uh, and then some stuff on the sort of the psychological side of things is I think is quite interesting. So, I mean, what are the effects of, um, of contest dieting on the athlete in terms of um, does it infer sort of disordered eating like symptoms? Do we, um, can, is it better to do things like reverse dieting to, to limit this process or does that make, is that even more negative? Um, how do you recover from the, the diet afterwards as well? And then, as I've kind of alluded to, I, I love the whole sort of bodybuilding culture thing. So there's there's tons of space for people to do sort of qualitative research on just like what does it mean to be the bodybuilder and um, what is the, just sort of the general sort of culture surrounding it and, and how can we sort of maybe help bodybuilding athletes sort of engage with coaches a little bit better and engage with education a little bit better. So hopefully that answers some of your uh, your your questions on that one. Yeah, no, that's terrific, uh, Andrew. I mean, fantastic, fantastic insights here uh, from yourself, someone who's obviously deep into the research as well as on the uh, on the actual practical side of things. So, you know, where can people stay connected with you, Andrew, and keep up with your uh, phenomenal research? All right, okay. So if you uh, if you want to find me, you can find me on uh, Facebook. So I've got uh, a page on there. So that's Andrew Chappelle, Natural Bodybuilding. So C H A. P-P-E-L-L. You can also find me on Instagram. So I'm fueled by Scott's Oats. That's the uh, the porridge oats because I'm Scottish. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> so you can see my, my posting various videos on there of just largely lifting heavy things up and putting them back down again. Terrific. And then um, you can also find me on uh, ResearchGate. So I'm I'm on there as I'm on there as well. So if you've got any questions about this uh, podcast or sort of bodybuilding in general, then uh, drop me a line. I'll be I'll be happy to see if I can help you out with uh, with something 
That's fantastic, Andrew. We'll definitely include the links uh, and the papers we discussed here in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Uh, thanks again for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions for Andrew or want to leave a comment on today's episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. Uh, keep those comments uh, coming. They're definitely greatly appreciated. And of course, if you enjoy the show, take a minute, subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks again. See you guys all next week. The Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcasts.